AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett Johnson with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. And as usual, we're joined by our Tuesday guest, Patrick Kulikan, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Great resource to follow along what's happening in the latest in Minnesota news and politics. Make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com. That's minnesotareformer.com. As today, we are going to be talking about what's in that budget agreement that was reached between the legislature and Governor Tim Walls. We'll be taking Taking a closer look at some money that is going towards the Department of Corrections and also housing assistance. Plus, we'll be talking about uh, what's shaping up to be kind of a mess, which is the endorsement process for the Minneapolis DFL and some of their uh, city council races. So, Patrick, thanks so much for coming back on the show today. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So let's start off talking about what's in this budget agreement that was reached between Walls and the DFL-controlled state legislature. And, well, let's go to housing because they are getting a significant increase over the next two years in the housing budget to provide people with rental assistance and housing assistance. So for housing, what is the current budget agreement that was reached and how does it compare to previous year's funding for housing? Because this does sound uh, significant this time. Yeah, it's a it's a billion dollars uh, above the the current base budget, which is really quite small. So, man, this is something like uh, one of my reporters said it was um, something like eight times um, what what they've appropriated in the past ten years or something. It's it's some really huge number. Um, the so the question is, do you use that money to build more housing supply, uh, which is obviously very expensive, or do you use it to give uh, rental assistance? There's a hundreds of thousand, a couple hundred thousand uh, Minnesota households who are paying more than 30% of their income in rent. And uh, that's what we call cost burden. It makes it very hard uh, to live uh, decently if, if you're spending that much on housing and um, so, so the goal has been for a couple of years to to give everybody who qualifies people in that situation a voucher. They're not going to be able to do that with a billion, um, but um, they are going to be able to build, you know, a fair amount of affordable housing. Um, it's it's kind of a drop in the bucket, uh, but certainly it's a major investment, um, and I think that housing advocates have to consider this a, a, a victory uh, given what we've been doing historically. And I, I think there's just been a, a new recognition of the importance of housing uh, and, and how it interacts with other social problems. Um, kids moving, having to move with their parents uh, into new schools, school districts, uh, uh, the lack of housing, um, you know, affecting people who are in abusive relationships. So there's, there's, it, it interacts with a lot of different social problems that we're trying to ameliorate. And, and, uh, so that's a billion dollars there to, to try to do something. It's not quite enough, but it's a start. Well, it is kind of a good news, bad news type of thing, where obviously with the news comes from the fact that they are getting $1 billion of extra funding, which will certainly go a long way towards helping people find affordable housing. But I guess, the bad news might be that it's, well, coming from largely one-time funding, which could cause some problems in future years. Now, that is a problem that several members of the state legislature have recognized. So uh, talk about this difference between how 
this really is uh, kind of coming from one-time funding versus, well, having an ongoing funding uh, for these for these types of programs and what some members of the legislature would like to do to try to get these, try to get housing sustainably funded in future years and not just drawing from this budget surplus on a one-time basis. You're right. The the, the budget surplus, $17.5 billion, that's the number everybody keeps hearing, but the reality is that uh, it's only uh, about, about $12 billion of that is really just one-time money. You can't uh, do new programs um, or tax cuts uh, because it's it's not in perpetuity. It's just the one time. And so if you want to have an ongoing uh, funding stream uh, to help people with rent, uh, then uh, you got to come up with revenue from somewhere. And what they're proposing is, a, I think it's a, uh, a portion of a cent uh, sales tax increase in the seven-county metro. And... Um, that money would be dedicated. I think, I think it's uh, above 300 million a year, and they would use that uh, would be distributed to cities and counties, and then also some to the state uh, for that rental assistance. Um, the problem is there's a bit of a competition because uh, there, there's also uh, a, a drive um, on the part of transport, transit advocates uh, for um, uh, another sales tax increase. Um, that would go toward transit. Um, so uh, sales taxes are uh, regressive, um, but on the other hand, groceries, medicine, and clothing uh, is exempted. So um, I think this is a, uh, the solution they've landed on. Um, I'm not sure exactly where leadership and Governor Tim Walls are on, on these kinds of tax increases at a time of uh, deficits. Um, the, the politics of it um, may be not great, People see this big surplus, and then um, they're wondering why we can't uh, do some problem solving uh, without having to raise taxes. Yeah, that does sound like a bit of a tightrope that you would have to walk in that situation. Uh, of, uh, well, do you raise those sales taxes when, on the other hand, as you said, there there is this large budget surplus, so it could make things a little politically challenging in that case. Uh, Want to move on to another area of the budget, which is getting a significant uh, increase in funding. That has to do with the Department of Corrections and, well, prisons in Minnesota. As Walls has proposed, uh, or the... Uh, Budget would increase by about $400 million over the next two years, which is a 27% increase in the budget to nearly $1 billion uh, total over the next two years. So I'm curious uh, why we're seeing this big uh, increase in the budget uh, of the Department of Corrections. Uh, Talk a little bit about that since uh, typically we – you would think that would be more of a Republican priority than a DFL priority, just to be kind of blunt about it. Uh, so, so what is the justification for increasing the Department of Corrections budget? So they expect the prison population to increase from 8,000 uh, to 9,000. That's a 12.5% increase. Uh, the, the reason is that there was kind of a backlog of cases during the pandemic that are now being cleared. And then also we saw uh, an increase in uh, certain crimes during the last few years uh, that, that could lead to prison time. Um, so that would uh, put them near capacity, which is uh, 9,600 beds. Uh, certainly a bit of a, um, I think, a disappointment to progressives who are hoping to 
uh, actually reduce the prison population and, and make the criminal justice system uh, less punitive. Um, and it's also, as you mentioned, a 27% increase in the budget, nearly a billion dollars per year. Um, and, uh, and again, that's, uh, that's a lot of money that could certainly be used, uh, for what we might consider to be more productive purposes. So, and there are some areas in the Department of Corrections which uh, do seem uh, pr- pretty well underfunded. I think uh, one example in the article that brought up how I believe in the Fugitive Apprehension Unit, they're still using faxes to send out important information and critical information. So certainly there are some areas that uh, that do need some upgrades in the, in the Department of Corrections, as uh, was pointed out in the article, of course. And uh, corrections officers, uh, you know, starting at, $21 an hour, which, you know, might have seemed like a decent wage a few years ago, and I just don't think it is anymore um, in this highly competitive labor market where you have such low unemployment and really not enough workers. And I think that's going to, uh, it's not going to uh, help you draw uh, the kinds of uh, people that you want. And in fact, it creates a shortage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's the, uh, the more urgent issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I know there's there's been, of course, correction officers that have been injured because, well, uh, largely they don't have the staff to break up fights that sometimes happen in these uh, happen in these prisons. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're certainly going to be looking to increase pay in that area, too. Um, I'm curious, you touched on this a little bit, but I'm curious what criminal justice reform advocates and advocacy groups like, let's say, the Twin Cities Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee think of this budget right now? Because you kind of alluded to the fact that they were a little bit surprised that with that unified DFL control, we're still going to be increasing this budget. What are their thoughts? Is this an all-out revolt, or are they just disappointed and maybe hoping for something better in the future? I'm curious what their perspective kind of is on this. Yeah, they're uh, um, they're, they're opposed to this. Um, um, the problem is that uh, folks in prison and their families are uh, probably the least influential political group um, in the state, um, and so it's it's hard to get a lot of momentum um, in opposition. But um, you know, we talked to uh, a guy by the name of David Benke, um, who what he told us is this is doubling down on the status quo. And, you know, we're in a system now that's destroying families and, and creating these cycles of violence, and it's just going to do more of the same. So I, I think that's the it, – during a legislative session and a budget year when we're seeing a lot of democratic policy uh, being implemented um, after years of stagnation and inaction and paralysis of the legislature, you're seeing progress across all these fronts and, and apparently not in corrections. We're speaking with Patrick Kulik, and he is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Make sure you go to minnesotareformer.com for the latest in Minnesota news and politics. Uh, final news article I wanted to talk about with you today has to do with the endorsement process for the DFL in uh, the Minneapolis City Council races because what happened earlier this week, actually on Monday, was that the Minneapolis DFL Executive Committee voted unanimously not to accept 358 out of 514 delegate signups for City Council. 
Council candidate Victor Martinez in Ward 5. So let's dive into this a little bit more because this is not the only case where we saw some irregularities when it came to signing up delegates for some of these city council candidates in the city. So who is Victor Martinez and what were some of the irregularities that, well, led to this decision to throw out the delegates for uh, Martinez? Yeah, he's a a pastor um, who uh, he's against abortion rights and was endorsed by the Minneapolis Police Union. So might be asking if he's actually a Democrat, and I think that's a decent question. Mm-hmm. Um, and as it turns out, that the uh, the DFL, the city DFL executive committee, um, are not accepting 358 out of his 514 delegates um, because they seem to all come from uh, the same IP address, and then they weren't able to validate uh, these uh, these emails with uh, paper sign up forms. Um, so they're out. But uh, as you mentioned, this is uh, we've seen this in a, a couple other wards. Um, and so um, there, there seems to be uh, uh, it's a bit of a mess, <laughs> to be honest. And, yeah. and uh, I think they're trying to clean it up. So this whole process for trying to get delegates signed up, and I believe you need this in order to be eligible for the for the for the convention, uh, if I'm right on this. But it sounds like the rules are very loose on this. And as we had a chance to talk to a number, or you guys had a chance to talk to a number of the delegates, it sounds like they didn't they didn't even know that they were delegates, or might not even remember who Victor Martinez was, or some of them said, oh, well, maybe I'll sign up and be a delegate for this person. So it does kind of sound like this is a case, too, where the rules are a little bit loose when it comes to, well, who gets to be a delegate and who doesn't. Yeah, uh, the reporter, uh, Dina Winter, she, she went on a little field trip with a, a candidate in the sixth ward, uh, Casey Megan, who um, he had some real questions about the, his opponent's uh, delegates, um, where uh, there was about his opponent is uh, um, had about 25 uh, delegates live in this one apartment complex. So they go over there and um, they start talking to folks uh, who were signed up to be delegates, and they say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. In fact, they, they talked to one guy who said, well, I'm a conservative Republican, so I'm pretty sure I have never uh, would never be a delegate um, in the city uh, DFL uh, caucus process. Um, so uh, there seems to be some real questions about whether or not people who were signed up to be delegates um, even knew that they had been signed up. So how does the Minneapolis DFL plan on resolving this situation, and could the state party possibly get involved? Basically, what kind of comes next in this whole process? So the, um, the, in, that, in the fifth ward, um, apparently the, uh, the party, uh, the, the local organizing unit is, is running things, and they'll resolve any disputes, but they state party could be called in to arbitrate. Um, but first, they want to have the locals try to work it out. Mm. Um, they're trying to uh, get the campaigns in the fifth war to switch to an in-person convention. And then uh, they could have, a in, at an in-person event, they could have a credentials committee. And then the convention uh, as a whole could then seat uh, delegates. 
Um, that'd be a standard process. Part of the problem here is he had, this was, some of it was a virtual convent, you know, and some of it was, um, in person. And, um, it just created a lot of, uh, confusion. Yeah, certainly sounds like that as it's a messy process that they're going to have to sort out with the uh, Minneapolis DFL in the coming weeks. Uh, final uh, point to bring up with you here, Patrick. I understand right now at the Minnesota Reformer, you guys are trying to reach some fundraising goals right now and have a great opportunity for people who uh, could end up uh, giving to the Minnesota Reformer to get some, uh, I believe it's matching funds, I thought I saw. Yeah, we won a nice grant from a national outfit called Report for America. They send uh, promising young reporters out to areas that uh, they think could use the help. And uh, so it was, a, it was a significant grant, $25,000. Um, and then we have to come up with the rest of the money for salary and benefits. And uh, so, yeah, so we kind of launched that today. And we certainly would appreciate uh, everybody's uh, support if they can. Um, we're trying to uh, do stories that maybe aren't getting done elsewhere um, and providing commentary um, that we think uh, uh, the, the state of Minnesota needs. Yeah, absolutely. And I can certainly second that. Uh, definitely coverage that we need here in the state of Minnesota. So make sure you give over at minnesotareformer.com, minnesotareformer.com, as we have been speaking with Patrick Hulikan, the editor-in-chief of The Reformer. Patrick, as always, thanks for coming on the show today. Appreciate it.